0: If you live in New York, you have no excuse. Right. Get to art right now.
1: Welcome to Hyperallergic, the podcast. I'm Harag Bartanian. This episode, we speak to curator and art historian Kelly Jones about some of the work she's been doing, particularly with African American art or art of the African diaspora. But also, we want to celebrate her new MacArthur Grant. Hi, Kelly.
0: Hi, yay! <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thanks for
0: celebrating the MacArthur.
1: I think it's fantastic. So, what does it feel like to be a quote unquote genius?
0: Well, I'm still floating. I, I don't know what to make of it. I'm excited, and I think I'm excited for myself, of course, but I'm also really excited for my field, for African American artists, African diaspora art, um, all the people who are, have been working in the field, who are getting into the field. And just, you know, for art history in general, MacArthur hasn't given that many art historians uh, grants, so I, I feel very privileged
1: you're not a typical art historian it seems that's probably why i mean the projects you've worked on over the years now dig this was a real revelation for a lot of people about black art in los angeles in 1960 to 1980 your civil rights show recently witness um that was also a revelation i think for some people who weren't used to thinking of art in that context quite the way you had presented it was there a moment that you were like you were very conscious of like things have changed people are really taking this differently more seriously, perhaps?
0: I think, you know, in the last five years, many what I call mainstream institutions have been gotten interested in the work of African American artists. The Tate, the Pompidou, the Museum of Modern Art. The Museum of Modern Art bought, bought 12 pieces by artists who were now dig this. Some of them in the show, some of them were, that were not in the show in the wake of the exhibition being at MoMA PS1. The Whitney, with their new opening, they were looking for works. The Brooklyn Museum has had a fund for a number of years to buy works, particularly of African-American modernists, so not people who are working contemporarily or not even in the post-World War II era, Mm -hmm. but people earlier, So I, but I began to see it. When it went international to the Tate and the Pompidou, then I was like, okay. Wow. Right.
1: right? Yeah. and But your field of inquiry has also been a lot broader. It's also Latin America. It's also the African diaspora. You know, how do you see them as all sort of connected in what you do?
0: I'm a lifelong New Yorker. Yay, New York. <laughs> and I went to a public high school now called LaGuardia School of the Arts. And I was there being an artist, even though I thought, you know, I'm not really going to be an artist because artists are broke. But (laughs) I, you know, knew how to do it. So I was in this high school meeting a lot of people such as Whitfield Lavelle, my high school buddy, another MacArthur fellow.
1: And you were a painter in high school. Is that not true? Well, I
0: was a painter. You know, in high school, you do a lot of things. You do ceramics, you do painting, you do collage. You know, I wouldn't say I was a real painter. (laughs) Um, But... In the art history classes there, what I notice is that all the people of color were ancient. Now, you're sitting in a school, you're in a diverse New York City school. You know what that looks like. It's very diverse. There are people, you know, African Americans, Latinos, Asians, but nobody was in the books, the history books. Now, of course, this is many years ago in the 70s, but I asked myself, why are all the people of color very ancient? They're Egyptians, they're Aztecs, but after that you don't see people and and I thought this was wrong because here I am with all these people in uh, high school but also I grew up on the Lower East Side and I grew up around a lot of artists such as Jack Witten, William T. Williams, Melvin Edwards, Norman Lewis. I knew all these people existed so I thought this is wrong. Then I went to college I really wanted to be a diplomat, Then that was kind of not working out for me. I thought, hmm, let me think of something else. So I fell back on art, but then I realized there was actually a role for people who were not artists. You could be a curator, and that's really what I started out doing. But I started basically designing my own major in college by taking courses in uh, Latin American art history. I actually went to Bogota, Colombia to study and studied art history there. And made my own classes up about African-American artists, you know, took independent studies. I also studied in California where I was able to study some of these things and and kind of make it up myself. One important class taught by a professor named Asa Davis was about the African influence in Latin America.
1: Mm.
0: That starts you thinking about diaspora. So in college, I was already aware that what that was, and, you know, learning that basically only 12% of uh, enslaved people from Africa came to this country. Hmm. The rest <laughs> went all over South America and the Caribbean. Right. So there's more people there than here. So you just start with that fact, and then it opens up the world to you in a, in a huge way.
1: So you're already looking at the overlaps of histories, really, already then. Yeah. And, and in terms of the way you, I mean, you're confronted with sort of art history, you go to college. I mean, I know that I went to college in the 90s, and I was already kind of a little depressed that I felt like this was a very conservative telling of history, and very Eurocentric, of course. Mm -hmm. Now, how did you combat that? Or how did you overcome that? I mean, I know you say you created your own kind of major, really, Mm -hmm, in, mm -hmm. in your own way. But there is like a certain kind of it feels like such a fortress, such a monolith Mm -hmm. sometimes art history. How did you sort of chip away at that?
0: Well, you know, I started with this degree in college, and then I went right into curating. So I went right back into these populations in New York. Uh, I was a curator for about nine years before I went and got my Ph.D. So by that time, I really knew there were people out there. And um, I always tell my students, don't try this at home. Go right to grad school or just don't take that much time off. It's a different day. But um, when I got to graduate school at Yale, again, they have a major African-American studies program, and I also was able to study with the phenomenal Robert Ferris Thompson, who was one of the kind of founders of the study of African art within an art history program. Previously, when you studied African art, this is prior to the 60s, it would be only in anthropology
1: was there any resistance
0: you know no you know people have asked me about resistance and i guess it might have been there but i just kept going there was because i couldn't there was no rational reason why this shouldn't be studied
1: fast forward to today like in terms of cuz you work a lot historically specifically in the 60s 70s that that seems to be your area of concentration and a lot of people are sort of calling out similarities between the 60s and the 70s and some of the political and social justice-oriented work, especially in contemporary art, and today, you know, with the Black Lives Matter. Do you see similarities?
0: Every generation is part of its world, right? Every generation of artists responds to the world they live in. Norman Rockwell was a card-carrying member of the NAACP. From 1960 onward, he you know, leaves the Saturday Evening Post because he cannot, they do not allow him to publish his more political images. And he Mm. goes to look. I think today, you know, certainly a lot of artists are involved with Black Lives Matter, or they are commenting, even if they're not directly a part of that organization, they're commenting on um, social issues of their time. So you see somebody like a Hank Willis Thomas, whose work has always been about this type of idea and violence against black bodies. So you have artists like that that are definitely responding to their time.
1: You grew up in a pretty it, time that I think a lot of people idealize in this sort of East Village in the 60s. And, and you know, there was a lot of energy that was sort of a new wave of creativity. What was that like?
0: You know, you grow up around a lot of creative people. They're not rich. Unlike artists today who are able to... M- Many more artists are, because the art world is is so successful now, being able to live off their work, which is great. You know, when I went off to college, I was kind of surprised that people didn't know living artists. When you're a kid, you think the whole world is like your world. They thought all artists were dead. And I was like, are you kidding? All artists are alive. That's why it was so str- strange for me about art history books, because these people were like walking down my street. I was like, wait a minute. And it took me going away to college to really appreciate what a gift that was and how I was uniquely positioned to kind of bring that to the world. So does
1: that mean you were growing up at you going to exhibition openings? Does that mean every week there was a poetry reading? Does it mean that there was like a Sunday brunch where you had all these artists around your kitchen table? What did that mean?
0: It was all of those things. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's idealistic, but that really did happen. Going to, there's a picture in i minded of me running into Paula Cooper Gallery. That was real. You know, going to people's openings, um, going to people's studios. I mean, I grew up going to being in Jack Whitten's studio, being in uh, Alvin Loving's studio all the time, being in William T. Williams' studio because I babysat for his children. You just take that for granted. But it was really just really a privilege in the end to to do that, because you you realize how much, first of all, you realize how hard it is. And um, you just get to see the creative process up close. And it really is a miracle to see what people are able to make from nothing from their from their brains. And that's what I I love about art and why I'm so really interested also in, you know, public institutions. I got some of my training at the Studio Museum in Harlem at the Jamaica Center for Arts and Learning, then called the Jamaica Art Center, which was a community art center where anybody could just walk in for free and see art. And I think that's really important because you know, some of the people who gave me some of the best critiques were the janitors and the other people who were there, or people who just walked in. So I always want that to be available to people. You know, sometimes people say, "Well, there's so many things in the world we need to involve, be involved in um, violence against people of color, the political process. All of these are very important things, but art is still important too. It's still important to have a place where you can." dream and think and relax that's where ideas for change come from
1: definitely and a lot of those artists you were talking about particularly in the east village and some of these artists that you're you're naming now they started getting institutional interest by the early 70s but then that sort of dissipated strangely why did that happen
0: there was a lot of protest in the 60s and a lot of the protests by artists we have free days and late nights at museums because artists protested because they said people can't see this art. And now places like Target and others support these evenings. And because of protests, that's why the museums began to change. I talk about it in my book, I Minded in one, which article. is a fantastic book, by the way. Thank you very much. So you know, how the protests led to change, the Whitney having a number of shows of African-American artists, the first solo show by African-American artists at the Whitney being in 1969. I mean, you almost don't believe it, but it's true, because here's the Museum of American Art, but actually the Museum of Modern Art showed African-American artists before the Whitney. A little bit strange, wow. but but this is how history happens. And then guess what? Those works never were shown again for the most part. So when I did Now Dig This, one of the great things, uh, and other shows that I've done, such as Energy Experimentation, Black Artists and Abstraction that I did at Studio Museum in 2005, I you know it gives me an opportunity to go into museums like the Whitney, like the Met, request pictures or sculptures to be brought out to think about having them in the show. Once they get in these shows, then all of a sudden these institutions start showing them again, which is great. A lot of works in um, Now, Dig This hadn't been seen in 40 years.
1: It's amazing. And so now let's talk a little bit about your parents and their influence on you and your work. Um, Hetty Jones, your mom, had a big impact on
0: you. Well, she was my first editor and my best editor ever. You know, she's really inspired me as a woman, as a feminist, as somebody who never gives up on her art. She published her first real book of poetry, and it won an award when she was 62 years old. And, wow. and that's really the story of women artists in this country, that, you know, you can look at somebody like a Betty Sarr, um, who's having her first, like, really big European show right now at Fondazione Prada. She's 90 this year. Right. You know, a lot of women artists really don't get any recognition Their kind of early years are really in their 50s or 60s. Um, So she's really inspired me that she never gave up writing. I really admire her.
1: And your father, Amiri Baraka, I mean, he's such a powerful figure, particularly in poetry. How did he influence you?
0: Both of my parents, they really believed in art and believe in art that can change your lives, whatever it is. And they, you think poets are just writers. No. They go around the world. They can go to Bologna and read one poem and come back. You know, they're really troubadours. So they really love to go around the world reading. Mm-hmm. And so that's really been influential, but you know, just never giving up on art and never giving up on, in my father's case, the beauty of African-American and African diaspora culture, which I, which I got from him also.
1: I feel like with his poetry, often he's using art as a weapon and a tool. Were you conscious of that? Did that feel radical?
0: I thought that's what art was. You know Art was supposed to change things um in both their cases. you know, art changes things after studying art history and so on. You know that's not always the case, but I love that spirit about what art is supposed to be, and it art is part of our larger world, so it's not just by itself trying to do that. it's part of institutions. It's part of books. It's part of movies. It's part of, you know, education. It's just part of our world. So yeah, art does change things.
1: But how are we going to change art history?
0: They do change slowly over time. I mean, you know, I enjoy so much working at Columbia University because I feel that department, it's one of the largest art history departments in the country, and it's global, and it's been global for many, many years. We have many Asianists, ancient Japan, modern Japan, ancient China, uh, Southeast Asia, we do Africa, we do the African diaspora as well as Europe. So we do art of the Islamic world. So I'm really excited to be part of that. And I do feel even if people make a nod to different narratives, it's a change. And students also require it. Students don't only want to learn about the Italian Renaissance. It's big, but (laughs) they also want to know the breadth of that.
1: Now I'm going to turn to your book a little bit. Oakwee has a pretty big presence in your book. It feels like he's referred <laughs> to again and again. Like and I'm it. kind of curious what that influence was, speaking of people who may have helped influence your thinking. Because one of the things about the book I also appreciated is there were vulnerabilities you showed. Mm-hmm. When you talk about going to South Africa and wanting to do a show about, you know, um, Sarge Bartman, thought, a.k.a. the hot and Venus, and sort of like checking yourself and being like, wait a minute, this was at a time where I hadn't written what Okwee had written about this topic and and you're being very sort of self-critical in the pages, which I appreciate. But can you tell me a little bit about the influence of someone like Okwee in the field and in your work?
0: Okwee is huge. Okwee, you know, I've known him since he got into this field and what he's been able to do is amazing. Um, His shows are amazing. I mean, the Venice Biennale, from last time was fantastic. I agree with you. And he just knows how what is the topic that we need to talk about. And he talks about, you know, these things. He he's talking about how we need to change the world, even in light of the people who own the world are the biggest art collectors. So he he does it anyway. And people are still excited about it, people still lend works. You know, I think he's very, very important. When we were working together in South Africa, I did want to do this show on the Hot Not Venus. I had this idea. And he was like, "Uh, I don't know about that. (laughs) And he was right because it, you know, I didn't know what I was walking into. He had already been there for several months and he had the lay of the land at that point.
1: Now I want to talk to talk about Jean-Michel Basquiat. (laughs) I think we're in Brooklyn. We're actually not that far from where he was raised. (laughs) And he's actually buried actually at the cemetery close by. And, And, you know, and it's amazing to me still how many young artists get into the field thinking about Basquiat. He is the ideal. Why is he such a huge figure? I think because he was young,
0: you know, when he passed away. So he's still the boyish figure. Those works that he made have so many levels to them. Mm. Even though you know he's talking about things in the '80s, right? Mm-hmm. People really relate to some of the ideas, and you know their films that he appears in, but also about him. Uh, the film that Julian Schnabel made, right, uh, starring the great Jeffrey Wright.
1: That propelled him into a whole different level in the people's imagination, definitely. That made a huge impact. But I mean, the work itself, I mean, like there was a notebook show recently. I mean, he's given a, a level of scrutiny and attention that I think a lot of... Artists aren't necessarily given. It's amazing how many articles or books or something I'll read about these sort of aspects. Like, sort of, it's almost like some new aspect has been discovered or decoded. Like, there, yeah. people have this sense of almost decoding Basquiat.
0: Well, like, where I, does that come from? Part of it is because he's no longer with us and yeah. he can't control a narrative and he's easy to control. I see. You know, another, you know, he's the highest selling African American artist in this country. And who's the next one? David Hammons, who right. takes a totally different approach, right? right? David Hammons is known for withdrawing from the art world from all this kind of attention. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think it's easy for people to do that with somebody who's, who's not alive. But the paintings themselves speak to many people. They're very diasporic, mm-hmm. you know, because here's this Haitian Puerto Rican guy from Brooklyn. Right and then words people who are into literature and words wow. love him too because he's really a wordsmith That's right. he really thinks semiotically i call it the semiotic imagination of Basquiat, because his way with words was incredible um so there's just so much there on so many levels when i did the Basquiat show along with franklin sermons and others at brooklyn museum in 2005 what can you say there were 40,000 people the last weekend right how do you explain that you know and i think for me having seen you know 75,000 people come to witness that people are hungry for these kind of stories that break the conservative art history so you're not alone right, right. you're not yeah. alone yeah
1: no absolutely people well really I, mean, want that. I mean even his grave here at the local cemetery is one of the most visited graves in the whole cemetery i of mean it's course just amazing it how much of an allure he still seems to have yeah. on people's imagination now where do you go to see artists i mean people talk about artists leaving new york but i mean those of us who live here know that's not necessarily true <laughs> um so where where are you finding that fuel to fuel your creativity
0: I go to museums, independent art spaces, Chelsea. Now, are these the hottest, latest? Not necessarily. That's why you need to connect with younger people because I think, you know, people who are in their twenties doing things, in their early thirties doing things, you know, they're connecting with their own cohort of people. They have a different kind of energy, you know. So I really look to a younger generation of people to tell me where to go and who to see. Otherwise, I'm, you know, there's still great things at the Studio Museum. There's great things at the Whitney, MoMA PS1, and at MoMA, because also these institutions have changed. Because also they've renovated themselves. And even something like Chelsea, which is the commercial hub, they've changed. So you can see people like Rashid Johnson, Jenny C. Jones, Fred Wilson. So I think the kind of things that we thought of as kind of out of bounds for diverse audiences or diverse artists, it's not the case anymore. That these institutions are actually seeing the light
1: mm-hmm.
0: and changing. My question is how long it will last.
1: Ah, but right. Because you've seen this happen I've before. I've seen it
0: happen, but you know what's different? is that it's much more widespread. Right. So I don't think it's going away anytime soon. And then now you have Lauren Haynes at Crystal Bridges Museum, right. Jamila James at ICALA, you know, Naima Keith, who was here, who was my great assistant on Now Dig This, was at Studio Museum in Harlem, and now is the deputy director at the California African American Museum. So this is a whole new generation of people that are not going to let things slip back.
1: Thank you so much, Kelly, for your time. A pleasure. Thanks for listening to Hyperallergic, the podcast. We're now on iTunes, so please subscribe and stay up to date on future episodes. I'm Rog Vartanian, editor-in-chief and co-founder of Hyperallergic. Our executive producer and editor is Gisele Rigatau. Theme music is by Garen Geikian. And our publisher and co-founder is Vikeng Geikyan. Thanks for listening.